Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, heart, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exhort you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm on the pastoral staff team here. Uh, it's good to, good to be with you and good to bring God's word to you this morning. James, this morning, is coming to us with a hard, a sharp question. He's, he's asking us, the world or the Lord? Where is the deepest allegiance of your heart? Is it with the world? Or with the Lord? In a sense, this is what his letter has been saying the whole way through. And yet today, he wants to press this home to us sharply, personally, uncomfortably. He wants to do it so that he can expose the seriousness of the situation. He says, if our allegiance is with the world, chapter 4, verse 4, that means that we are enemies of God. And that is a, a fearful place to be. And he wants to press this home to us 
strongly so that we might come to God, come to the Lord, and receive more grace. As we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, please, would you give us the grace this morning to hear your word. Lord, please, would the Spirit do his work amongst us. Would he convict us as we need conviction and comfort us as we need comfort. When the words are sharp and hard, Lord, please, would we not harden our hearts? Would we be hearers? of your word and doers of your word today. Amen. Uh, Last week in James chapter 3, he introduced us to this idea of of sources. Uh, The source determines the outflow. He used this idea of a spring. Fresh, a source, a fresh spring will produce fresh water. But it works the other way too. Uh, The outflow tells us what the source is too. It proves the source. So if if you have fresh spring water, the source is going to be a fresh spring. This morning, James wants to continue on that theme with us. He's going to show us two types of wisdom. He's going to show us that they have different sources and that they have, they produce different outflows. Our our first point this morning is this. The fruit of our lives reveals or proves the source of our wisdom. So let's begin by taking a look at these, these wisdoms. There are two wisdoms to take a look at. There's the wisdom from above and earthly wisdom. Uh, the wisdom from above is called that in verse 17, and earthly wisdom is called that in verse 15. Uh, The fruit of our lives reveals the source of our wisdom can be seen in verse 13. Take a look with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. How will we know someone has real wisdom? Well, by their good conduct. Uh, Or you could just say life. I think it's a bit of a flat, it's a fine translation of those words, but it is a bit flat. Those words, good and conduct, are really beautiful life. The wisdom from above will be seen as it produces a beautiful life. And we're going to see what that beautiful life looks like. Uh, Come with me down to verse 17 and 18. Let's just uh, read through it. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I just want to make three comments uh, on this wisdom and the life that it produces. The first one is this, the wisdom source comes from above. That's an idea that we've already had in James. Every good and perfect gift comes from above the Father. It comes from God. And so that is to say that this wisdom is a gift. 
It is a good gift from God, but it also must be fitting with God and all his other gifts. So it must be fitting with the other things he's given us, like his son, the Lord Jesus, and the gospel of grace. That is, it's going to be, it's going to look the same as as a saviour who would sacrifice himself, who would serve others by foot washing and dying in their place. That is what this wisdom from above is going to be characterised by. The second comment to make. Do you see how, how high a place peace has in this? It comes up three times. Be peaceable. Then in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that is just to say that this wisdom is going to produce a beautiful life in us that is going to look like peace with God. I think peace internally and relational peace beyond. It is a beautiful life. And here's the third thing to say. The beautiful life that's produced prioritizes character over externals, over outward appearance. As you take a look down the list, it's far more about someone's character, their purity, their peace, their full of mercy, their impartial or unwavering, their sincere. It's character that is the beauty that is here, not just looking like you've got a prosperous life. It isn't health and prosperity and middle-class tick-boxing or neatness that is going to reveal a beautiful life. It is not those things which proves that you have the wisdom from above. It is character. I was trying to think of a situation like this in my life, and I, I remembered a colleague of mine, a really wonderful Christian lady. And she had a period in her life where oh, everything just fell apart. It was a total mess. Her husband was running up debts, spending time, huge amounts of time with other women. He, w- he would leave the house, wouldn't explain where he was going because he was spending time with them. He would insult her terribly. And so some people might look at her and go, your life's falling apart. You must be working on the wisdom, on earthly wisdom, right? And yet, can I tell you what I saw as I met with her week by week as we worked together? I saw an incredibly beautiful life. The mercy that she showed... She paid the debts again and again and again. The words that she chose to use were so merciful to this man, both publicly and privately. She sought peace through the family, through the church, to him. It was incredibly sad. It was incredibly messy that it ended in divorce. And yet, as I look, as anyone would look at her, the character that was produced was beautiful in the midst of the mess. It was fitting with the one who gave it. 
full of mercy and grace and kindness. The wisdom from above produces a beautiful life. Now let's take a look at earthly wisdom. Verse 15. What does it produce? Disorder and vile practices. Again, to make uh, three, three comments upon it. It also reveals a character. Uh, if you take a look at verse 14, what has it got? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting. The character that it reveals is one that is, is centered on the self. Selfish ambition, for me, boasting, look at what I've done. Uh, jealousy, I want that. It is selfish. And that disorder that it is going to produce, I think is going to, is going to contrast, going to be opposed to the sort of wonderful, beautiful life that we see in uh, the wisdom from above. So there's not going to be peace. There's going to be relational breakdown again and again with that self-service. There'll be rages, not mercy. James also tells us in verse 14 that it is false to the truth. James has spoken about the truth before. He's spoken about it as the word of truth in chapter 1. It's the word of truth that is the gospel. He says, if this is the sort of thing that's characterizing uh, your wisdom, what's going on in your heart, selfish ambition, jealousy, boasting, self-centeredness, that is entirely false and incongruous, unfitting with the gospel. They're like oil and water. They should not mix. Now, I think many of us will be going, well, I don't, I don't like any of that worldly wisdom stuff. I'm not interested in that. But can I just stop us for a moment and think? Think through a situation, an imaginary situation. I'm not sure it's that easy to say, it's not me, Gov, don't worry. Imagine for a moment there's something you desire. We'll just give it, we'll just say it's a promotion at work. How easy it is to use the wisdom of the world in a situation like that. There's a promotion that I desire. And because I desire it, how am I going to achieve it? Well, I'm going to go, go on maneuvers. I'm going to try and maneuver myself into the best possible position. I'll begin to have some conversations behind people's back. I'll start to pull some strings, pull in some favors, make sure that I'm fluffing myself up behind behind the scenes, and in those same conversations, there's, there's someone that I know, someone else that I know is going for it, and I just want to take the shine off them. I seem a bit jealous of that skill they have. It puts them maybe a bit above me. So I just want to take the shine off a bit. So easy to do. And then we're in a meeting. It's a team meeting. He has a really good idea. I can't let them know he has a good idea. So I'll argue against it. I need to, at the very least, prove that I'm smarter, quicker thinking, and that he hasn't got the best ideas I do. And lo and behold, the promotion is got. You get the status, you get the better office, you get the money. Worldly wisdom is very effective at getting what we want. There is a real logic to it. And we can deploy that sort of self-serving wisdom, not just at work, but in school, to make sure we get the part or whatever else. 
We can deploy it in our homes or in our churches to get what we want. Self-serving wisdom. It is incongruous, unfitting, false to the gospel we profess. My third comment on this earthly wisdom is that in verse 14 we're told that it is located in the heart. Jealousy, selfish ambition, and boasting are in the heart. Uh, by heart, he, doesn't, he obviously doesn't mean just the muscle that's pumping blood. He means the emotional, the seat of our emotions, the decision-making element of us. He knows that we do what we love. When we love something, we will do it. We will always choose steak over salad because we love it more. It's how we work. And what he's doing now, what he does next, is to try and keep diagnosing the heart. He wants to chase down the emotions, our disordered emotion, to show to us, do you see the reason why these quarrels, the reason why this recurring relational breakdown is happening, the reason why there is anger in you? is because you're, you're using the wisdom, the method of the world. Not the Lord's wisdom, the wisdom from above. So verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he asks the question, what's causing these quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions, your disordered desires? And he runs through what they are. You desire and don't have, so you murder. I don't think he's talking about um, physical murder. I think he's following his big brother's example and saying anger is the same heart as murder. He says, you covet but can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask but don't receive because of wrong motives. What do these things reveal about our hearts? What do these emotions, these responses, show us about the, the wisdom that we're using in our hearts? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You want something, but when you don't get it, how, do, how, how does someone respond? With anger, rages. I wonder if that's ever been you. I don't get it. So I'm angry. I deserve it. The world owes it me. Covets and can't obtain. You're jealous of what that person has. You can't get it, so what starts happening? Fights, arguments. You needle them. Take them down a peg or two. This next one's interesting. You don't have because you don't ask. What does that reveal about our heart? Well, it could be any number of things, but here's one in particular. I think it must reveal faithlessness. Again, James has spoken about not asking earlier in the letter, and it talks about prayer. Here it's the same, I think. What does it reveal about the heart if we're not asking God? It means we're faithless, and we, are self, we think we're self-sufficient. That's what the world thinks. It thinks it doesn't need God. And then lastly, we request, you ask but you don't receive. Why? Well, because of wrong motives. 
You want to spend it on your disordered passions. So, so actually, one of us could be, we could be asking entirely good things, godly things, and yet have a wrong motive and God might not answer it. I could be praying night after night, God, please grow Spectrum, make it 50, grow Pathfinders, make it 100. Would we have the biggest youth work in Kent? Please, God. And I could be asking it, not for his glory and their good, but simply because I want people to think I'm good at my job. Isn't he good? I could want it for, for selfish ambition, for my ability to boast. And do you see, that would be a wretched thing for God to give me. I would be working entirely by the wisdom of the world, even though I'm asking for something that seems godly. Because my desire is actually for self. I wonder how are these diagnostics doing on you? I find them hard. I find them really hard. Where does anger bubble up because you don't get? Where does covetousness lead to arguments? Where are we prayerless, faithless? Where are our motives entirely based on the world's way? Well, that's a big question. What do our lives reveal? Are they beautiful? Or do they reveal that we're using the wisdom of the world? Do they reveal that we're allied to the world more than the Lord? We're going to move to our second point And as we move there, I want you to imagine a doctor's surgery. And a doctor says to a patient, you're morbidly obese. And the patient says, but doctor, I just really do like fried chicken. I really like it on the bone. I like it in burgers. Wings are the best. So I am going to keep going to Morley's every day. The doctor is going, what can I do? He has to press home the seriousness of the situation. And so he he says to him in the starkest terms, Sir, you are morbidly obese. You are so fat. You keep eating the fried chicken and your arteries are going to fuzz up and stop. Your heart will have a break. You will have a heart attack. You will die. Your wife will be a widow. Your parents will be weeping. Your children will be dadless. Do something. It is that serious. And I think that's what James does next. In 4 verses 4 and 5. He asks us, are you adulterous enemies of God? I wouldn't be brave enough to stand up here and ask that question if it wasn't there. But do you see what he says, verse, chapter 4, verse 4? You adulterous people. You cheats. You two-timers. You're a betrayer. You're a promise 
breaking polygamist. You're double-souled, double-minded, double-sourced. You're like a woman who, who promises herself to a man and then jumps into bed with someone else. You call yourself a Christian. You speak like you've promised yourself to Jesus. And then you're making eyes, flirting, jumping into bed with the world. You adulterous people. In the rest of verse 4, he puts more detail on what, he, what he's getting at. He says, let's, let's just take a look at it. Let's read it. Uh, here we are. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship here isn't just being seen as a, as a cheap uh, click on a Facebook button or, a, or an acquaintance, someone you nod at in the street. Friendship here is, is saying we're aligned. We're aligned in our, our ways of, of thinking, our, our values, the way that we work. If, if we are to make ourselves friends with the world, we make ourselves enemies of God. Uh, this isn't to say that we're not meant to be friends with people. It's absolutely not saying that. Of course, we're meant to be friends with people from all over the place, neighbors, colleagues, anyone that we can meet. In fact, we're commanded to know and love people. What it is telling us is not to be friends with the world, with its ways, with its values, with its methods of getting things done, placing the self at the center. Do not be allied with it and its ways. Or you become an enemy of God. And verse 6 tells us how God will treat people who are, are proud enough to make themselves enemies of the Most High God. He will oppose them. He will oppose them now and always. Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here, if we are friends with the world, we make ourselves enemies of God. We oppose him and he will oppose us in judgment. What's being revealed about us this morning? Do we use the wisdom of the world? It's self-serving, self-centered ways. Are our heart motivations self-service, selfish ambition, jealousy, boasting, centered on us? Is the wisdom, is our way of thinking fitting with the gospel of a, of a, of a crucified Savior who would sacrifice himself, who would spend himself, wash filthy feet, is it the wisdom from above? Or is the wisdom that we use adulterous, self-serving, self-seeking, proud disaster? Are we adulterous enemies of God? 
I imagine as we listen to this, we fall into at least three groups. Uh, let me just kind of try and sketch them out. Group one, I think we probably don't really see there's a problem. We've maybe listened to this and kind of just gone, yeah, see you next Sunday. Or, or we don't really think there's a problem with having an allegiance with the world. What's wrong with the world's way, really? There's not a problem with that. For you, I would want to say, please hear this. There is nowhere more dangerous to be. Not dangerous because you're missing the point of the sermon, but dangerous eternally because it is a fearful thing to help fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, if you're offended and you think that this is a terrible thing that I've just said, please come and talk to me afterwards. Tell me why. But please hear what's been said. Here's the second group. You see the problem. You see a gap between what, what you profess and how you live. You see that there's a mixed allegiance in your heart and you don't like it. You don't like it. It makes you sad. You hate it. And you run to Jesus and say, Jesus, please help me. Help me put this to death. Forgive me. I want to fight this. If that's you, please hear this incredibly loudly. In Christ, you are safe. He is working in you. He is forming you and conforming you more and more to the, the wisdom from above that fits with the gospel. He's, he's pulling you out of worldly wisdom, earthly wisdom, and is reshaping you that your mind might be his. Do not fear, keep going. But I think there is a third group. People who might be sat saying, I see the gap, I see the problem, I see my heart is allied to the world. You might see, I don't want to fall into his hands. I don't want God to oppose me. I don't want to be allies with the world. I want to be his. And to you, there is wonderful news. There is a way to be allied to him. Take a look with me at verse 6 of chapter 4. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God will give the great gift of his grace. So many gifts to those who are humble. And we're going to take a look at what that means next. Uh, this isn't actually just for people in group three. This must be heard by group three and group two and group one. Verse 10, humble yourself and he will exalt you. Humble yourself. He is going to, James is going to show us what it looks like to humble ourselves before the Lord and to receive his grace. And let's just read through verses 7 to 10 because he's going to say it infinitely better than me. 
What does it look like to humble yourselves? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's just run through this. He's, he's showing us what it looks like to have a, a whole of life realignment to God in our works, in our words, in our wisdom, in all of our life, the things that he's been talking about, works and words and wisdom. Well, to put it this way, to re-ally yourselves to God in all of life, from the deepest level, from the inside out. So instead of following the world and the world's ways by putting self first, we're to submit to God so that it no longer works like this in our minds. I desire, therefore I do. No, we throw that away. Instead, we say, God desires, therefore I do. We resist the devil. That is to say, we reject his ways of pride and self and disorder. And the promise we're given is that as we do that, he will flee from us. We're to draw near to God. To speak to him, enjoy him, to know him and love him. And know that he loves us and longs that we might reach out for him and find him. How do we know him? He has made the first move. He always made the first move. He has, in fact, already drawn near to us in the Lord Jesus. We've already heard about his way that the Son became flesh so that he might serve us by sacrificing himself to be God with us that he might make atonement for sin and then ascended he has sent his spirit he has given us his word so that we might know him and read love letters from him to our hearts he has given us uh, the Lord's table so that we might enjoy fellowship with him the word made visible He's given us gifts like the church and song. Let us draw near to him and he will draw near to us. Next, cleanse your hands, you sinners. That is a way of saying, get rid of worldly ways. Kill it. Step away from it. Kill it and its opportunities. Get away from its wisdom. Cleanse our hands. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy gloom. I don't think this is meant to tell us that Christians are meant to be grumpy, sad, miserable people. I think what it's getting at is helping us see that our whole selves, our desires need to be reordered. So the things in the worldly way that we did live, that used to bring us joy, the promotion, yes, the corner office, brilliant, the status, thank you. 
We now see them properly. They shouldn't bring joy, but gloom. They shouldn't bring laughter, but mourning. Because they're wretched things, wretched motivations. As opposed to this way of doing things, this beautiful way. It's so that we might be realigned, re-allied to His way. That is what it looks like to humble ourselves. There is a promise that comes with it, isn't there? That as we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. There are loads of little promises, or a few little promises in this little section. He gives more grace. It's a certain statement. He gives grace to the humble. He does. It's, it's fitting. It is who He is. It makes sense of a God that would overflow with goodness to create a world. It makes sense of a world of a God who would send a Savior like Jesus. It is fitting with Him that He would undeservedly, certainly shower undeserved grace upon those who humble themselves before Him. To give them His very self. To give them peace and mercy. He promises that as we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. We will not be left alone. We might think that the world's way is effective. Well, it is. In a way. But it's no way as effective as God's sure and certain promise that He will draw near to us and He will exalt us. Uh, ultimately, uh, we, won't, we might not see that exaltation here and now, but ultimately that exaltation comes because we become like Christ, the one who humbled Himself and because of His humility, Philippians 2, was raised up to the highest place. It will be the same for us. That as we humble ourselves before the Lord, we will be raised up to the highest of places. Surely and certainly. This morning, uh, James has tried to, or has excavated our hearts, revealed to us what our lives produce so that, so that we might see the wisdom where we are allied with the world or the Lord. And he's given us a command that wherever we find temptation to be allied with the world, we are to humble ourselves Submit to Him. And He promises that as we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank You for these words. 
Thank you that your word is sharp and can divide bone and marrow. Thank you that by your spirit, these words will go to work in our heart. Please, Lord, would you do that work in us? Would you, by your grace, by your spirit, stir us to humble ourselves before you, to submit to you and ally ourselves, re-ally ourselves to you in all of our lives? Amen.